You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good, and you do good. Teach me your statutes. Those are verses 65 to 68 of Psalm 119. Verses 49 through 72 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Wednesday, July the 21st, 2021. <clears throat> You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, we're continuing our study in the life of David through 1 Samuel at the moment, and then into the book of Acts, and finishing up with the gospel according to Mark. So today we're continuing this, the story of David. Uh, David and Nabal. And and remember, Nabal was a wealthy man who had uh, flocks and herds, and and David's men had been, they're on the run, they're hiding from Saul, but they're in the wilderness of En Gedi, and and they had been taking care of, providing protection for, I guess, uh, Nabal's flocks and herds and his shepherds. And so when time came for the shearing, and, and it was a great feast time, uh, because everything and everybody was gathered together, and so now you have that feast time, and David is there with his men, and he makes a request of Nabal that he provide food for his men, for David's men. And David reminds him and says, when we were with your men, we didn't take anything. Not one single thing went missing. So we didn't steal anything, and we didn't allow anybody else to steal or take anything as well. So we haven't asked for anything until now. And Nabal says, no, I'm not going to give it to you. I I, I understand that there are many uh, servants on the run from their masters right now. And so he knows who David is. He knows the story. And he's taken Saul's side in this thing. And, and David has breathed out threats against him that, that he's going to kill everybody. Now, David has gone way out of line <laughs> when he says that. So Abigail, the wife of Nabal, says, we got to stop this. And so she sends food along and then says, I'll come right behind it. And when she comes, she hurries and gets down from the donkey and falls before David on her face and bowed to the ground. I mean, she is worshiping David. She's, she's imploring David because she knows he has the power and he has the ability to do what he has said. And she says, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ear and hear the words of your servants. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, her husband, Nabal, as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. That's the meaning of the word Nabal. So then she, she implores him not to do what he has pledged to do, which is to kill her husband and all these others. And so she comes and she pleads for David, don't do this thing. Don't do this thing. Forgive the trespass of your servant. And she's speaking of herself. The Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. And then he goes on to say that if you do this thing, it's actually going to be sin. There's only one person who has sinned against you, and it's it's Nabal. But I'll take that blame on myself. And the reason she's taking the blame is because she's providing the resolution. She's brought food and and everything that David's men need out here in this place. And so she is um, she's preventing David from murdering innocent people, the servants of Nabal. And at the end of, the, I mean, it's it's you would think it was obsequious as many times as she uses the word Lord to describe David and servant to describe herself. We've got probably a dozen times in this passage where she speaks of David as my Lord and then ultimately calls herself only remember your servant. 
and, and that's exactly what she's presenting himself herself to him as. There's a recognition of David's power and position and authority, even though he hasn't stepped into that particular role yet. And David, when he hears it, to his credit, says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Because she's made this comment before about my Lord shall have... When the, <clears throat> when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince or king over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs or conscience for having shed blood without cause for my Lord, working salvation for himself. And so in, what the salvation is, is the, um, the retribution against Nabal. And then David comes to the end of the little speech that he says, and he makes an important comment. He says, go up in peace to your house. So I have, a, see, I have obeyed your voice and granted your petition. And it, he obeyed her voice because she was speaking to David of sin. And if you do this thing, you will have committed a horrible sin by killing innocent flesh. And so she goes home, finds her husband drunk, having the feast that we had previously spoken of. And in the morning, when he recovers with his hangover she told him all these things and his heart died with him in him and he became a stone and about 10 days labor later the lord struck nabal and he died and then ultimately what happens then is david hears this and and he rejoices over what's happened to nabal and then he reaches out and sends men and says david would like to take you abigail as his wife so he's going to have multiple wives here obviously and so she presents herself and says behold your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my lord now abigail had been a wealthy woman prior to this and yet now she offers herself not just as wife but servant to the servants of david what incredible humility it is, and, and then it, we're told at the end of this passage, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, uh, and both of them became his wife. Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. So da Michal had come back home, and, and Saul, in spite of the fact that he had given Michal to David, now gives her to another man. And so David's got two wives and then one in exile, essentially. Um, but but it, it's the 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 protection against sin that Abigail provides here that, that's extraordinary. And, and remember, we've still yet to get to the whole Bathsheba thing. Uh, Abigail is, a, is an extraordinary woman. There, there's no way around how extraordinary she truly is. And so she's somebody that we should all look to as, as an example of how we need to treat one another and how we should think um, of ourselves towards the Lord. And we, we should be preventing others from sinning, not standing by and gossiping. Abigail took the action she could take and goes to David and does this, and then she's free of guilt as well. But she prevents David from doing something that is horribly wrong. And if he felt badly about cutting off the corner of Saul's robe, how much worse would he have felt when he, when he and his men destroyed not only Nabal, but all of the men with him, which was David's pledge. And so we, we need to see the restraint and we need other people in our lives to speak truth into our lives, especially when we're you know, reacting out of anger or, or just emotional outburst. Even whether that's right or wrong, we still need somebody to get in front of that anger. And we need somebody to speak into our lives and stop us and get us to think about what we're doing or saying. Because Jesus says that anybody that says in his, uh, that my brother is a fool, 
has murdered his brother. And so we need to be careful. We need somebody to slow us down and stop us before we let that train of thought get out of control. And, and I see it too often today in American uh, political life on both sides. I was talking to some friends yesterday about this very thing. The language we use about one another. I mean, I had somebody tell me yesterday, somebody on the, that, that a, a popular media figure on the left wears a ring that is made of the crushed bones of the first uh, child she killed. When you do that, you're stepping into scary territory. Because what you're saying is that person no longer deserves to live. How can they be fit to live? We're demonizing people when we do that. But on the, on the, on the left, it, it's to say that people are deplorable and irredeemable. If you think somebody's irredeemable, and if you label everybody a racist, and you label everybody as a, as a, a demon-possessed person or a Satan worshiper or whatever, it, your political opponents, if you believe that about these people, then ultimately you're going to be the cause of one of the ugliest scenes in American history. And so we need to back away from that kind of language and that kind of thought. We need to stop demonizing one another and letting our anger and our frustration run riot with us. <clears throat> Jesus, in the gospel lesson today, Jesus is um, crossing the boat, crossing the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee, after he has preached to the people. He says, let's go to the other side. And some others followed him. And, and there they go. And a windstorm arises while they're out there. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So throwback to Jonah here. Everybody else is losing their mind on the, on the boat with Jonah. And he's asleep. And they have to go get him and say, what are you doing? Cry out to your God. And he says, this is my fault. So they wake Jesus up and say to him, teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I mean, I know they're new to this game. They haven't known Jesus all that long. But the reality is, what a horrible question. You don't care because you're asleep. You're sleeping in that proof that you don't care. We can allow our tongues to get so far ahead of ourselves. And, and, and does he not care that they're perishing? That's the whole reason that he's come to earth. That's, the, that's his entire mission is, I care that you, those who are created in my image, are perishing. You, you have no earthly idea. How much I care. My whole point in being here, my whole point in going to the cross and putting up with all this was because I care that you're perishing. And so they awake him and he rebukes the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And everything got calm. In fact, it was a great calm, Mark says. And he says, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And, and who is he indeed? Who do the wind and the sea obey? There's only one. That the wind and the sea obey, the one who brought them into being, the one who spoke them into being. And so now this one stands athwart the wind and the waves and says, peace, be still. And it obeys it. We need a bigger sense of, of who God is. You know, that's the thing. We need a bigger sense of who Jesus is. We can, we can flatten him out so much that we can say things like, well, Jesus never said anything about blah, blah, blah. Well, the reality is Jesus is the Word of God. He is God, and he had already spoken about those issues. He only came to further elucidate what was said. So if you want to know things like, how do I love my neighbor? Well, first I've got to determine who my neighbor is. And so you ask, who's the neighbor? And he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's just your neighbor is anybody creating the image of God who needs you to be a neighbor, and you can do something. And that's the, the reality is that we need to get a bigger vision, a bigger version of God. We need a much bigger vision of Jesus. We need to stop making him a man like us. He is, but he's also God.
And we need to keep those two things in, in dynamic tension all the time. It's the eminence of God, the, the God with us, plus the transcendence of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God, the one who sits on the throne, and only the one who is Jesus can come and take the scroll from his hands. Only God himself, the God-man Jesus, can do that. And, and so we need a bigger picture of that and because we, we need something to keep us in check. And we, we need to remember Yes, he is the Christ who, who died on the cross for us, but he is also the one who is before the throne pleading for us because we need pleading for. And so we need restraint in our lives. We, we need to, to not let our thoughts and our anger run away from us. And, and here they let it run away from them a little bit when they ask him, or, or do, do you not care that we're perishing? So then we, we come to this passage in, in Acts. This is one of my favorite passages in Acts and one of the most amazing things you'll ever see. So remember yesterday, they had gone, Barnabas and Paul had gone down to, to Lyconia and, and there they had gone to Lystra. And in Lystra, um, they had healed a man, or Paul had healed a man who had been born without the ability to walk. And so Paul restored him utterly. The man uh, springs up and begins to walk right away. And so the, the people there, because they remember this, not remember, they're well acquainted with a myth of Bacchus and Philemon who, who, who are telling it that it's a story of, of the gods Zeus and Hermes coming to earth and, and then no hospitality was provided for them. So they then um, turned the people there into wolves and sent them out on their way. And then they come back to this poor couple, Bacchus and Philemon. It's easy to find this myth online. It's only about six pages long. Um, and, and so they come and, and now... When they see this great work done by the people here, in, by Paul and Barnabas here in Lystra, they become the people of Lystra become convinced because of that proverb or that uh, myth that oh, it's happening again. We better nothing but God could have done this, and so they they believe uh, that Paul and Barnabas are Zeus and Hermes, and and so they, they want to make them gods and they want to worship them there. But then the next day, <laughs> they stoned Paul. Because Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and persuaded the crowds that these are actually not gods, they're bad men. And so they, they, were, they were, one day you're up and the next you're down. It's a half an inch of water and you think you're going to drown, John Prine says. And so what happens here is, is that yesterday they were to be worshipped as gods, and now they stone him in the same place and drag him out of the city, thinking he was dead. But the disciples gathered around him and he rose up. And entered the city. I mean, this is a like a, a pro wrestling script, right? I mean, it's the Undertaker sitting up and, and coming back from the dead, and he enters the city. He goes back, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby, which is another city in Lyconia. And so, when they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, the very places where the people came to stone him. From these places, he went back again strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I mean, seriously, the man was stoned. Uh, tribulation is, is too weak a word for that. But he, but he comes back because he cares deeply about the people who are disciples there. He cares enough about the disciples to not leave them alone with these people and to go back into the, to the belly of the beast to continue proclaiming the gospel. That's an attitude we need to have. We need to have be fearless like Paul. We need to be, to, to be persistent like Paul and to embrace the reality that, that hey, sometimes things don't go well for us and, and they're not going to go well for you all the time. Look, I mean, Jesus promised you that. 
And so while they're there, they appointed elders for them in every church, and with prayer and fasting, they committed to them the Lord and whom they believed. And then they went on, and they began to go to other places and to continue to proclaim the word. And then they came back to Antioch because those people wanted him so much and they loved him so much. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And so Paul goes back to sort of the the place of his first great success, the place where Barnabas had brought him to in order to strengthen and build up the church in Antioch. And so it becomes sort of his staging ground for that particular missionary journey. But but to me, it's, it's an absolutely amazing thing that Paul can be stoned in a place. They have to essentially raise him from the dead because everybody believes he's dead. He, what does he do? He gets up and he goes right back into the fray, into the same place. And then he goes on in the same area in Lyconia and then comes back and goes back directly to the places where the persecutors had come from. Paul is a man who persevered. He did not let, in most cases at least, his anger run away from him. He continued to care about people and care about the gospel. They were his neighbors no matter whether they stoned him or whether they believed in him and loved his message.